Good morning. Please stand while we read from the word. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Good morning, everybody. We're talking about a hero of the faith this morning, and I want you to see this because we've been in the book of Genesis now for a few weeks, and we're going through these narratives in Genesis, but if, you, if you're not reading straight through, sometimes you don't realize something monumental happens in chapter 12. The whole tone of the book, the outline of the book, everything changes because in Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to one of the most significant people in all of history. In all of history, in fact, the three great faiths in our world today, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all say our founder is this guy, Abraham. And if you, if you could put yourself back in the mindset of somebody, especially in the first century, Abraham was the hero of every Jew. He, he was the person that all of them looked up to, all the little Jewish boys, they wanted to wear the new pair of Air Abrahams. I mean, he was their guy. I mean, if you're collecting a, a rookie card, Moses is good, David is okay, but if you've got Abraham, especially if it still says Abram on there, I mean, that is worth a lot of denarii. That, that is the apex of who they looked up to. And you know, it's funny because in the Bible, we can see this play out because every time somebody wants to talk about a hero of the faith, Abraham shows up. In the New Testament, when Jesus wants to talk about someone of great faith with the Pharisees, you know, he says, they, they say, we're children of Abraham. And he says, oh yeah, let, let's talk about Abraham. When James, Jesus' half-brother, wants to talk about faith, what does faith look like? He says, it looks like Abraham who was called a friend of God. And when the author of Hebrews introduces the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, just a great reminiscence of all the people who have walked by faith, you know who gets the longest section of that chapter? Abraham. When Peter wants to talk about faith, Abraham. When Paul wants to talk about faith, Abraham. So much so that when you're reading this, you're like, what is it with Abraham? What is it about his life that is so, it so stands out from everyone else that he was called the father of the faithful? He was called a friend of God. In fact, even in Islam today, Abraham's title is Khalil Allah, which means the friend of God. I mean, just step back for a moment and think about it. Somebody who lived in 2000 B.C., not Jesus, didn't claim to be divine, just a regular old person is that influential in history. So the question before us this morning is, why? Why was Abraham so influential, and how can we imitate him? How can we be like 
Abraham. If Abraham's life is a model of faith, of believing God, how can we be like Abraham? What, what is it that made him so special, and how can we be like that? The first thing you need to know, if you turn to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bible, the first thing you need to know about Abraham is the only reason we know about Abraham has nothing to do with Abraham. It has everything to do with God. Because at the beginning of this story, it's not Abraham who's the first character, it's God. It's not Abraham who takes the first action, it's God. It's the Lord said to Abraham. And I'm just going to call him Abraham because that's his longer name. I'm not going to get into the Abram, Abraham, trying to parse this chronologically. You know, the name Abram means exalted father. That's the name his parents gave him. And it probably doesn't mean that he's an exalted father. It probably means that he has an exalted father. So his name is exalted father. And after God promises a child, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. It means big daddy in English. And he doesn't have any kids, which I just think is so ironic. They're like, so you're by big daddy. Okay, how many kids do you have? Currently none. But we're expecting. He's 99 years old. So Abram, Abraham, is actually not the main character at the beginning of the story. The main character is God. God picks Abram. He picks him out of this line of pagan people, and he decides to change his life by calling Abraham to follow him. The, the call of God is what makes this story what it is. The call of God is actually the initiator of every story in the Bible. Because the first thing we learn about God is that He is a speaking God. He is a communicative God. In the beginning, God speaks the universe into existence. He, he is a vocal God. He likes to talk to His people. And I, I heard a pastor take the familiar story of the blind men and the elephant. Do you know this story? where there's these blind men and they're feeling around trying to figure out what this object is. And, you know, one of them feels the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, it's, it's a rope, that's what it is. And the other one feels the ear and says, maybe it's a big fan or something. Or they feel the leg, it's a big pillar. And usually this is used to describe our attempt to grope and feel and figure out what's true about the universe. And he says, that's all well and good until the elephant speaks and says, I'm an elephant. I'm an elephant. You can't, you can't argue after that. Well, I, actually, I kind of think it's this. The elephant has spoken, and we're no longer wandering around trying to figure out what's true in the universe because God is the one who has declared what's true. And, and this is important because Abraham didn't invent this faith. He didn't invent, you know, he, he's known afterwards as the God of Abraham. But it's because God spoke to Abraham. And the call, the call of God, comes in the midst of a real-life situation. And I want you to see in this text that it follows a genealogy. So if you're just reading this text, you're, you've been lulled into boredom, and then all of a sudden you're out of the genealogy and into the Abraham story. But I don't want you to miss what this genealogy is telling us. It's showing us that this is a real family. This is a real dysfunctional family. Like every family in the Bible, this, this family's got their warts. They've got their intractable problems. And it also points us to the fact that even from the very beginning, the Bible is not primarily a book about lofty philosophical theological ideas. 
Okay, sometimes we read the Bible like it's a philosophy textbook. Like if you could just grasp the depths of the theology, that will somehow change your life. What, what happens in the Bible is there are lofty philosophical and theological ideas, and there are grand universal truths in the Bible, but they're almost always expressed through the regular everyday interactions of real people. Right, so, the, so the Bible and our lives are actually not that different in that most people experienced God the same way that you and I experience God. If you read this narrative straight through, you're like, well, it'd be easy to be Abraham. God's talking to Abraham all the time. God appears to Abraham three or four times over the span of 50 years. There's a lot of everyday life in between chapter 12 and chapter 13, and chapter 13 and chapter 15. Abraham just is living his life. He's following God. He's believing what God says. And God's call comes in the midst of his everyday pagan life. The section before this in the genealogy details for us the history of, of Abraham's family. He's from the line of Shem, so Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Shem's line is the good one, you find out in this genealogy. Ham's line is the bad one, that's where Nimrod comes from, we talked about that last week, that's where a lot of the problems for Israel arise, but Shem is a blessed line. However, just like from Adam down to Noah is just ten generations and things go absolutely haywire... From Noah to Abraham is only nine generations, and things again have gone haywire. Sin is the inescapable reality in all of these family lines. It does not take long for people to revert back to the state outside of the garden. Wandering from the face of God, sinning, things are getting, they're going from bad to worse. This is the state of humanity. And in the midst of this, God speaks to Abraham, and he says, get up and go. That's God's commands. Get up from where you are and leave. That's all God tells him at the beginning. I just want you to go. <laughs> and you've been doing a certain kind of thing with your life. I want you to do something else. But I'm not going to tell you exactly what else. I just need you to go. The, the emphasis on the real life here is so evident when you go to Israel because later in the story of, of Abraham, we're not going to cover it in our Sunday series, but in chapter 14, he goes and rescues his nephew, Lot. And when he rescues Lot, it says that he pursues the people that have taken him all the way up to the gates of Dan. Dan is the northernmost town marker of the nation of Israel later on in uh, the kingdom. And if you go to Israel today, which we are going to Israel next January, and you need to sign up for that trip because then you'll see this in person. But if you go to Israel, they have uncovered gates from the time of Abraham that are made of mud brick that are still standing. They've actually, they were covered, and so they excavated them. And these gates are the ones that Abraham would have looked at when he came up to pursue his nephew, Lot. So we're not in a fairy tale section of the Bible. We're not in this kind of ethereal, spiritual realm where we have perfect characters in the Bible. We're in a real life, flesh and blood, mud brick world of ancient Israel. And in the midst of this, God comes to Abraham and he calls him. He says, he actually commands him. So sometimes we think of the call of God like a grand suggestion. You know, like, Abraham, if you get a chance, if you're, if you're feeling up to it, take a minute to consider, oh, I'm sorry, you're busy. Give me a call back 
God commands Abraham. This is actually like the word you would use when a king summons somebody up to the throne. And he says, get out. That's the literal translation of this command. Get up and get out. (laughs) So the next thing about this call that I want you to know is God calls Abraham to leave something behind. In fact, God's call always entails leaving something behind because Abraham was an idol worshiper. This story is so radical for us because it's not like Abraham was already pretty close to God. It's not like he was doing all the right things and he just needed one little extra step to get to God. He was an idol worshiper. And it's possible that maybe his great-grandparents were worshiping God, but by this time, he's living in the capital city of moon worship in the ancient world. This, This city of Ur is a major city, and what they are known for is the worship of the moon god, Sin. Now that is like a little bit on the nose for us. We're like, okay, should have known, okay? This was, should have been pretty obvious. I mean, it's not the same word in the Hebrew as sin, but for us, it's really rich with irony. He is worshiping sin in Ur. This is not good. And his family, we can tell they, they, they really are committed to this because when they pick up and move, they move to Haran, which is actually another center of moon worship. So th- these people are pagans through and through. They don't just, they're not just casual Christmas and Easter pagans. They go all the time. They, they are into this. His grandfather is named after it. This is their family. They are worshipers of this moon god. And in the midst of this, God calls him. And, and I just want to say this because sometimes as Christians, especially in a place like this, we're in the Bible Belt, we think that God only calls people that were already kind of going to church. They were already there, and they were pretty close. But that's not what God does. God calls people that are far from Him, don't know Him, not interested, doing all the wrong things, haven't cleaned themselves up. God calls those people to come and worship Him. It, it reminds me of the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? If you've seen that movie, where Delmar, so just a little plot background uh, for you that haven't seen this movie, which shame on you, this is one of the great movies. If you haven't seen it, the, these three guys led by George Clooney are on this run from the law. They've escaped the prison camp and they, it's modeled after the Odyssey. It's really a brilliant movie. And, and they are running from the law and they, be, they end up becoming this like, well-known band. It's, it's, just, it's just a great, a, a great plot line. And in the midst of this, they're on the run, they've been camping out, and they hear this beautiful singing. And they realize, they go down, and there's all these people in these white garments, and they're going down to the river to pray, as the song says, and they're all getting baptized. And so Delmar, who's not the brightest of the trio, runs down, splashes into the water, gets in front of the pastor, the pastor dunks him, and he comes out, and and the other guy goes, Delmar done been saved. (laughs) And he says, my friends, my sins have been washed away. No man can condemn me anymore. But, But the problem is, they go right back to doing what they were doing before. And George Clooney's character, I love this, he says, yeah, you're going to need to tell that to the state of Mississippi. <laughs> so Abram is, is called in a situation like this, but, but the call for Abraham actually changes something. See, what, what they're parodying in that movie is all the Christians who have been baptized, who have made a confession, and then go right back to what they were doing before. See, see the thing with Abraham is the command is so concrete it's, it's not believe something abstractly, it's go. 
leave something behind, leave your life, leave your family behind, go to where I'm going to tell you to go. And, and I would argue that actually every person who has trusted in Christ, this is your conversion story. Amen. It may not be that you have to make a physical move, although you might. It's, it's, it's not that you have to leave everything behind in terms of what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, but there's something in your life that if you're not following God and he calls you to follow him, you have to leave that. You have to turn around, go the other way, leave some things behind. And the wonderful thing about this call is it comes in a totally hopeless situation. Totally hopeless. There is no way Abraham could have made something out of his life. And, and I'll show you why. First of all, this family doesn't have much going for it. So in the genealogy, one of the things you find out is this is the promised line. Okay, this is the line of Shem. This is the one that something good is going to come from, and it has reached a total dead end. So in his family, he, he basically is in a small group, like a clan, and his father, his brother, and uh, who's, who's died already, are going to make this move to Haran. And if you look at verse 27, here's what it says. These are the generations of Terah. Terah's the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, who's going to be significant later in the story. And Haran died in the presence of their father in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah the daughter of Haran. You're like, hold on, wait, hold on a second. The same one we just read about, this is an insular family, which we're not going to have time to talk about, unfortunately. But the father of Milcah and Iscah, and Sarah was barren. So you've got one of them that died, one of them has married their niece, and one of them is barren. This is not looking good for this family. And they're living in Ur of the Chaldees, and then once they pick a move, the patriarch dies. Terah dies. So now it's all up to Abram. And he has his nephew, he's got his brother, his sister-in-law, he's, he's got this kind of intermingled family tree, and they are nomads with nowhere to call home. And one of the things I think we're supposed to grasp is, although Abram came from a line that had promise, his immediate circumstances actually had no promise, no economic promise, no genealogical promise, nothing notable about this family at all. And, and in fact, what we can infer from this text is probably a lot of grief in their midst. The, the first thing we find out about this family is they've, they've lost two family members in short succession. In fact, we never hear about Abram's mom. We don't know what happened to her, and we can't really guess from the text. The Jews have all kinds of ideas through the ages about what happened to this woman, but we don't know about her. We just know there have been two family members who have died, and I want you to know that this is supposed to evoke in us a sense of desperation, a sense of desperation. This is very similar to the story of Ruth, where you get Ruth's family who's been decimated by people dying, and they're like, where should we go? Where do we even go in a situation like this? And I think one of the things that's important for our context is we're not used to the truth that the Bible teaches from cover to cover that godlessness is always going to lead eventually to hopelessness and despair. See, see, we live in a culture that's still coasting on fumes of Christianity. In fact, one of the great historians of our era, his name is Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, a British historian named Tom Holland. He's not a Christian, but he's written several books on the history of Christianity. And 
one of the conclusions he reaches, he, I was reading this interview with him, and he said one of the fundamental changes in the way that he sees Christianity is, he's like, I, I realized how Christian my entire life had been up to this point, even though I was an atheist. Now, I'm not talking about his belief. I'm saying what he realized was the whole water that he was swimming in is the product of a Christian civilization. In fact, he makes a really trenchant critique against some of the critiques in the West right now that have to do with justice or sexuality or how we should govern ourselves. He's like, even the critiques of Western society are saturated with Christian language. Like, you don't rise up and protest that things are unjust unless you have a sense of justice that comes from God's law. You you don't rise up and say, we need the freedom of conscience and worship and religion to believe what we want to believe unless you believe that everybody's created in the dignity of God, with the image of God in them to respond to his spirit. So even, even the people that are upset about the Christian society are doing it in a very Christian way. And, and the point of this is, look, we have a society that's still kind of, it, it's still haunted by the fumes of a Christian society. But what we're about to experience is what everybody before about 500 years ago experienced, and that is outside of this time in history, godlessness and sometimes godliness has led to hopelessness and despair, suffering. The history of the world is suffering. And and what God does is he actually changes the situation, not so that being a Christian means you no longer are in a a difficult situation. It's that you can have hope in the midst of a difficult situation. See, Abraham was in a difficult situation. He's about to get in an even more difficult situation. But the thing that changes is now God has a call on his life. And so his life radically changes because God speaks into it. The, other, the last thing about this call I want you to know is God does not tiptoe around the difficult issues in Abram's life. So when God calls him and he tells him to get up and move, he, he, he attaches a promise to it. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you but you got to go. you got to get up and go. This is interesting because it's almost like God comes to Abram and he says, let's put our finger right on the hopeless parts of your life. Think about what God is promising here. I'm going to give a land to a nomad. I'm going to give a family to a barren couple. These are so outlandish. It puts his finger right on the things that would have been the most sensitive to Abraham. And in our world today, I I want you to know that we actually don't have to be scared of taking God's Word and applying it to the really tender, hopeless areas of the world. In fact, it's not a, the Bible really just works when when it's all cleaned up and nice and we're in church and we're singing together. The the gospel works all the way down in life. Abram, let's talk about your infertility because I want to be with you in the midst of that. Let's talk about the fact that you don't have a home. Let's talk about your idolatry. Let's let's talk about the hopelessness and the grief of your family. And so God comes right into the middle of this and breathes life into a very dead situation. The most important line of the story is in verse 4. These three words, so Abram went. So Abram 
went. This is where we go from the call to Abram to the faith of Abram. What is faith in this story? I would argue that those three words are a great definition of faith. God says, get up and get out. So Abram went. That's faith. Faith is responding to God's command. And later in Genesis 15, 6, we get a better definition of of faith. Abram believed God. Abraham believed God. This is what he's known for in the New Testament. Abraham believed God, and God counted that as a righteous life. Abram believed God, and so he was called a friend of God. He was called God's friend because he believed what God says. That's faith. That's a wonderful definition of faith. And in Hebrews 11.1, 1, we get the definition we always use for faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen, which is a great definition of faith. It's a biblical definition of faith. But I just want you to realize, Abram doesn't even have that, and he has faith. He actually can't have the assurance of things hoped for because he doesn't even know what he's hoping for yet. God says, I want you to leave your home and go to a place that I will tell you in the future. So one of the the commentators says, if we were to paraphrase this, I command you to go forth with eyes closed, is what God says. So Abram doesn't just believe that God has a great plan, although God does have a great plan. He doesn't just believe that God is going to do something wonderful, although he is later in the story. Abram just believes God. That's all he's got. Just God, just the personal reality of I trust him. That's it. it. It reminds me when we, this weekend we had a couple of camp families in town that we have known for a while, and so we're telling camp stories of working at Canacuck, and um, we're talking about one of the worst jobs at Canacuck is to be on what they call the tower, which is on the dock, and it's about, it seem, when you're up there, it seems like it's 50 feet. I bet it's 15 feet tall. And you have this little bitty, like just the size of this podium spot where you stand, and the kids climb up, and they, in theory, jump off the tower into the lake. And the worst thing about it is about every third or fourth kid gets up there, and they freeze, and they don't want to jump off the tower. And the unfortunate thing is this thing was built in like the 1920s, so it's extremely unsafe (laughs) to climb down the tower. I mean, the one way down is you must jump. (laughs) off the tower. And you could tell which ones of these kids are going to be future trial lawyers because when you get up there and you start trying to convince them to jump off the tower, you see what they've really got rhetorically. And some of these kids, they just are so terrified to jump off. And in fact, I'm ashamed even to admit this, but the easiest way to get them off is to ask them if they want to just take a look off the edge. And then especially if they're little, you just take their life jacket and boop, problem solved. But The best way to do it, actually, that I came to find out is most of them will get frozen up. Yeah, some people's esteem of me is going way down. Um, But the best way to do it, actually, is to put a counselor in the water at the bottom of the tower. That's the best way. And actually, an even better way is to put their counselor at the bottom in the water. Because that way, almost all of them will jump. If they look down and they see their counselor in the water, they're going to jump. Almost guaranteed, they're going to jump. And and it's amazing because the jump doesn't change, the height doesn't change, the the temperature of the water doesn't change, nothing else changes except they trust them. That person down there is going to make sure that I'm going to be okay. 
This is faith. Not, I trust that I'm going to survive this jump, although that's implicit in there. It's that person is going to make sure that this goes okay. And Abram believes God. That's it. And, and anytime we try to dress this up with something else, we take a little bit away of what faith really is. Faith is believing God. Amen. And what happens in Abram's story is, as he believes God, God begins to reveal his path. God begins to tell him where he needs to go. He sets out not knowing what God has for him, not knowing where God is going to take him, but knowing that God is going to go with him. Another way to put this is, he doesn't yet know the what, but he knows the who, and that's faith. You may not know what God is going to do in your life, but do you trust him? You may not know how God is going to get you out of this situation. You may not know what God is going to do in something that feels hopeless or exciting or desperate or whatever the case may be, but, but you know he's going to be there. And so you follow. That's, that's faith. See, in this string of stories in Genesis, we get a contrast. Adam and Eve, when they're tempted, they try to do it on their own. Eve takes the fruit. She believes the serpent. She doesn't believe the word of God, and she trusts somebody else over God. And what happens after that? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and they are away from the presence of God. Cain, God comes to him after his offering is not accepted and says, sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it master you. And what does he do? He kills his brother Abel. He hides from God. God has to come and say, what have you done? And Cain is pushed away to the east, away from the presence of God. At the Tower of Babel, they're building a tower because they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to have to do this on our own. And God comes down and confuses their language and scatters them across the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. In fact, the only two characters, main characters here in these stories are Noah and Abram. And both of these people, when given the choice of who or what to trust, say, come what may, and the odds are against this, and I know this sounds kind of crazy, but we're going to trust God. That's it. We're going to trust God. And both of them draw near to God, and God is with them through their whole story. That's faith. You know, some people argue, well, faith, faith really is just a blind leap. Faith is just one of those things where you just kind of throw caution to the wind and you just trust and you go with it. But that's actually not even remotely close to the biblical picture of faith because the biblical picture of faith is blind in terms of what is coming, but it is very clear on who it is you're trusting. Blind faith would be, I don't know anything about the future, but I'm just going to go with my gut and do this. But in, in fact, faith is always a response to the direct call of God in your life. And his words oftentimes are simply, trust me, follow me, walk with me, go with me. I will be there with you all the way to the end. The other temptation we have is not the blind faith. It's, it's, it's actually we want too much from God before we commit in faith. It's, this is one of those where you've prayed this way before. I'll believe God if he puts forward a workable plan that I already kind of agree with. Then I will trust him. You know, if God is going to do it, I've got some suggestions on how, and if it doesn't meet these specifications, I'm probably not going to trust God along the way. That's not faith. Until you take your hands off, trust him, no strings attached, I will go wherever he goes, no matter where that might be, it's not faith. The only true way to walk by faith is to start with God, 
Start with God. Start with what He is calling you to, and then proceed to the so. God called Abram, so Abraham went. What's the so in your life? Because if there is no so, there is no faith. God called you, so what? So what? If the answer is nothing, that's not faith. That is not faith. The Christian life is God called you, so fill in the blank. God called us to follow him. God called us to confess our sins, so we've been forgiven. And we walk in forgiveness. No condemnation anymore. God has promised that in the end, everything will be right and his kingdom will be exalted. So we start living for his kingdom now, even though we live in a very different kingdom. God has called you to forgive other people. So you go right into the storm of difficult relationships and you begin to forgive. Control what you can control. On your terms, you forgive. You love. And God has done a million things like this in your life but they'll always be attached to a so. God called Abram, Abram, so Abram went. God called you, so what? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're actually the beginner of every one of our stories, that no one of us could have initiated the life that you invite us into. In fact, it's so much worse than that, Lord. None of us even could qualify to approach you because of our sin, but you've reached out to us. You've called us. You've offered us a new life. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we begin the first step of this response by coming to your table, that in this time you would show us the other sows that are before us, the things that maybe you've been working in our hearts, the thing maybe we've been hearing from godly friends, the things that we just know in our spirit that you're calling us to, but we've yet to get to it. Lord, would you help us to identify those things? Would you help us to live in light of the identity that you've given us, that we are new people? We, we actually now are children of the Most High God. Just like we are all children in faith of Abraham, the Bible says, we, we truly are children of God. Father, help us to live like your children with all the security and identity and confidence that comes with knowing we serve the King of Kings. Lord, I pray this morning as we come to your table, you would remind us of your great love for us, that the call is not motivated out of duty. It's not motivated out of something that we have done or not done. It's motivated by your great love for us. Father, we thank you for that. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.